Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my chat with Jeff Mayno on Until Proven Safe. First, I wanted to remind you about BooksOnPod.com. While there, you can sort through past shows by episode number, book title, author's last name, or sort by category. For instance, select the philosophy, psychology, or science and medicine category for episode number 139 with Rutger Bregman on Humankind. This is Rutger Bregman. I'm the author of the book Humankind, A Hopeful History, and this is Books on Part with Trey Elling. Hello, readers. Jeff Mayno is a best-selling author, regular contributor to The New York Times Magazine, The Atlantic, The New Yorker, Wired, and more, and he's just co-authored a new book called Until Proven Safe, The History and Future of Quarantine. Jeff, thank you for the time. How you doing today? Not too bad. How's it going with you? Doing very well, thank you. So why did you and Nicola decide to write this book? Because I found out early on it had nothing to do with COVID-19, just excellent timing on your part. Hmm. Um, yeah, that's right. You know, we started working on it many, many years ago. Uh, we just got interested in quarantine, actually, after seeing uh, a former quarantine station when we were on a trip to Australia that had been turned into a hotel. And um, our initial interest was actually what happened to quarantine? You know, what was it? What was this obsolete thing that health professionals used to do in the past? You know, this thing that was invented in the Middle Ages and how is it leaving, you know, abandoned hospital or not, uh, you know, quarantine stations around that get turned into hotels. And so ironically, our initial uh, interest in this was, uh, yeah, to look at this historical process and try to find out what happened to it. And then, of course, the minute you look into it, it's everywhere. So for some context on what we'll be talking about for the course of the conversation, what is a quarantine? Yeah, it's a great question, actually. Um, it's a surprisingly simple uh process. So quarantine uh, comes from the old Venetian dialect word for 40. uh, And it's a period of 40 days, historically. Um, And the idea is that you will separate yourself from other people, or you'll separate a thing from other things. um, And you do it because you suspect that it's dangerous. Um, So quarantine is not the same as isolation. So if your kid comes home, and he's definitely sick, and you put him in his bedroom, um, that's isolation. Um, If you've been exposed to something and you don't know that you have it or you don't know that your neighbor has it and there's uncertainty and kind of some a little bit of, you know, even some paranoia involved, that's when quarantine steps in. And that's how you separate. I think you stated that the most important rule for quarantine is the uncertainty of things. When and why was the first quarantine? Um, yeah, that's uh, it's a it's an interesting historical question. Um, you know, the first official quarantine uh, was in the city of Dubrovnik, uh, that at the point was uh, in history was uh, part of the Venetian Republic. Um, this was at the end of the 1300s, so in the 14th century. Um, Dubrovnik is in the Adriatic Sea, which is uh, just to the east of Italy in the in the Mediterranean, and um, they had to call uh, officially start quarantining ships because they noticed that when merchants were coming over from the Middle East, uh, from what is now Turkey and from uh, you know what is now Lebanon, Israel, um, sometimes diseases would show up, and so they decided they'd make those ships wait, and that was that initial period of waiting before they could actually bring their goods into the city. Uh, was for 40 days, and that was the original quarantine. Who is John Howard, and how did he help you chart your course in researching past quarantines? Um, Yeah, John Howard was a really interesting figure from 18th century England. Uh, He was a prison reformer and uh, a wealthy son who had inherited a bunch of money from a father who worked in the upholstery trade. Um, and so rather than, you know, uh, invest in his own business, he used the money to uh, travel around all of Europe, uh, as far east as Russia, 
and he started investigating prison, the status of uh, how people were being treated in jails and dungeons and prisons all over the continent. Um, but while he was doing that, he noticed that, uh, you know, sometimes near the prisons, but also very similar to prisons were quarantine stations. And so he decided at, at, towards the end of his life uh, in his 60s um, that he would continue traveling, but now just investigate quarantine stations and quarantine hospitals. And so what Nikki and I did was we wanted to use some of his own uh, itineraries as a kind of uh, uh, a map to follow. And so, you know, we went to uh, Venice, you know, where he had actually gone into quarantine himself because he was on an infected ship uh, and he was worried about having been exposed to, to typhus. Um, we went to Malta, uh, which is a little island south of Italy, uh, where he was also uh, visiting to, to check out the status of the, of the, the quarantine stations there. And so we kind of used him as a, you know, a, so a historical person that we could follow around and give our give our research some uh, some guidance and uh, it was it was a, definitely the, the most interesting and fun part of the research was traveling to see all of these old ruined places built hundreds of years ago. And these old quarantine stations were called lazarettos back in the day. And as you just mentioned, you visited several of them. Why was the lazaretto in Ancona, Italy, so impressive for you guys? Yeah, that, that one is really amazing, actually. Um, you can actually see it on Google Earth. So if you go to a satellite view of the city of Ancona, which is on the east coast of Italy, it faces uh, Croatia on the Adriatic Sea, um, you'll actually see the building. Um, it's a pentagon, so it looks a lot like our pentagon here in the United States. Uh, it's multiple stories. It's brick and stone. It has a huge courtyard in the middle, and it's right on the port, uh, built on an artificial island. Um, what makes it really spectacular is is both the you know it's a very grandiose place. Uh, you can you see it as you come in on a ship, which is how we arrive there. Um, you know you see it as you leave the city on a train, and um, it's a very also complicated building. Um, you know it has this huge courtyard in the middle to air out goods, but also to serve as a kind of gathering place and for priests to deliver mass. Um, and then uh, the insides are full of huge uh, warehouse-like spaces to air out goods that have arrived. Uh, and then, of course, the individual cells and rooms for people to stay in. Um, but, you know, what's funny about that particular lazaretto is that it opened up just in time for there not to be any more outbreaks of plague in <laughs> Europe. So it just missed its moment, um, which is something we found throughout quarantine is that, you know, we're, we're, we're quite good at responding to things that have excuse me, happened in the past. Um, but that also means that a lot of the hospitals, a lot of the quarantine stations that we build, um, you know, they respond to the previous pandemic and they're obsolete kind of as soon as they open. What were some of the ways that people in the 1500s were having to kill time if they were in one of these lazarettos under quarantine? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, ironically, it's a lot like what I think we all went went through and in some cases are still going through. Uh, you know, they were just trapped in a room. Uh, some people tried to make the most of it. Uh, you know, some people prayed. Uh, other people just because uh, a lot of these people were merchants, uh, so they just did their their paperwork. You know, they did the equivalent of uh, their taxes, uh, just kind of making sure that they were balancing their accounts. Um, but what you see in a lot of these cases is just people eventually run out of things to do, and uh, you know they start complaining about how bored they are. Um, you know, some people wrote novels and whatnot. Um, a couple hundred years later, actually, in the in the era of steam travel, where more middle class uh, tourists went into quarantine as opposed to just merchants. Um, you actually see all kinds of things happening in, in quarantine. Um, one of the ones that, uh, you know, was, was really funny to see uh, was actually the rise of, a, of the genre of quarantine erotica. Uh, so people actually writing erotic short stories about, you know, the people that they're suddenly now trapped in a building with or these, you know, exotic strangers they've never met before um, who suddenly now are in the same building and they can't get away from them, et cetera. 
Um, so you know, it's in other words, it's a lot like uh, a lot like things going on, going on today. You know, instead of Netflix, though, maybe they had the Bible or they just had a had something else to read. Bible and chill. I got you there. Yeah. So uh, you just mentioned a few answers ago. Malta's Lazaretto. It was impressive. Built in 1643. You guys actually had to do a little bit of trespassing to actually look around this uh, crumbling former impressive structure. But why is the hospital so legendary at that Malta Lazaretto? Yeah, there's so many reasons for that, actually. Um, you know, as you just described, we we did, we flew all the way to Malta and met up with uh, a bunch of people there, actually. We spoke to the former medical director at that facility, um, a former nurse who was actually the last nurse to work the night shift before this place closed. Um, and it's and then a, an architect who is leading the renovation of, of this old, really, really uh, sprawling and huge uh, stone block uh, complex. And, um, you know, one of the things that happened, though, of course, is that as we were uh, about to go into this place with the architect, um, his keys didn't work. And so we had to we were locked out and we had to climb over two different fences to get into this place. Um, so in any case, what, what made it so impressive was not only just that it's a huge place. I mean, it really is just gigantic. And it's another thing that if you look at it on Google's uh, satellite view, um, you can really see the courtyards. You can see the staircases. You can see how, how this place was designed and, and organized. Um, but what made it so impressive was that Malta, uh, in a very interesting way for how it showed what quarantine might become in the future, um, was basically, a, in effect, it was a British quarantine station. Um, so the British Empire didn't want to build its own Lazaretto. It didn't want to invest the funds in having its own hospital. Um, you know, it couldn't find the resources. It didn't have the political temperament for it. And instead, it settled on Malta. Um, Malta was is perfectly situated in the Mediterranean. Um, it divides the western part of the Mediterranean from the east. Um, effectively, everybody has to ship past Malta if they want to go to Western Europe, if they want to go to France, if they want to go to Spain, and certainly up to England. And so they decided they'd make that their quarantine uh, place if, for people to stop. And so the British, you know, put resources into it, and and lots of people stayed there. Members of the uh, British royal family were putting into quarantine there. Um, there's a British romantic poet named Lord Byron um, who actually was put into quarantine there and uh, famously wrote wrote several poems there, hmm. and then also signed his name on the wall. And so there's still allegedly, uh, you know, visible graffiti somewhere in the building. We we didn't find it, um, but a Byron signature, you know, uh, uh, on on the walls of this of this crumbling lazaretto. Obviously, over the last year and a half, we have uh, dealt with varying degrees of quarantines. And of course, because everything gets politicized in 2020, 2021, the process of the quarantine was hyper politicized as well. Were there political motivations for quarantines back in the 1500s and around that time? Yeah, I think actually you'll find throughout quarantine history, um, there's politics always gets involved, uh, you know, precisely because of what you mentioned earlier, that uncertainty is a key part of quarantine. Um, that means that you can use it for anyone that you suspect of pretty much anything. You know, if you suddenly want to say uh, people from France might be carrying a disease and you're going to hold them in quarantine, um, you may not even necessarily need evidence. It's just that that's what the, you know, the public health officials are saying, or maybe that's just what you're saying, but you're using paranoia or suspicion or uncertainty uh, to implement a political project, not a medical one. Um, but so you do see that throughout history. Um, you know, you definitely see it, uh, you know, actually, you know, I mentioned France, but, you know, Britain and France uh, constantly used quarantine against one another as a way to get back at merchants. So if somebody had better prices for a certain commodity, um, the Brits would just quarantine those ships. And so the French merchants would lose out on, on lucrative markets. Um, but you also see it um, even just creeping up to the modern day. Um, you know, I think a lot of people don't realize that there was actually a brief outbreak of the bubonic plague in San Francisco uh, around 1900. 
And uh, there too, quarantine was used politically, basically just to seal off Chinatown. Um, they literally put a rope around Chinatown. Um, but what was both interesting and, and, and tragic was that they specifically went around white owned businesses, you know, as if white people couldn't get the bubonic plague. And so that led to some lawsuits and, and actually helped to, uh, you know, change quarantine law and how it can be applied today. But so, yes, you do see that kind of political use of quarantine throughout history. Sad story about San Francisco, but unfortunately, mm-hmm. knowing the history of this country and the history of the world, it's not too surprising. So John Howard, his original intent was to visit various prisons, but was he able to come up with any good prison reform ideas as a result? Yeah, his um, his prison reform suggestions and his quarantine reform suggestions were, were separately pursued in different books that he published and in different uh, sort of, you know, almost like expert testimonies that he gave at the Houses of Parliament in England. Um, and his prison reform uh, recommendations were everything from um, better daylight in these facilities, uh, certainly better access to hygienic water, clean water, better food. Um, he was famous for actually traveling around with his own scales so that he could go into a place and then measure the bread ra- rations that people were given to make sure that they were being kept healthy. Um, you know, he uh, these things were taken on board. And actually, in fact, there were uh, things like the Howard Society uh, in both England and in, there's a version in Canada that... Um, have taken John Howard as a kind of reformist hero for for uh, trying to improve the lives of people who are incarcerated. Because remember also, John Howard wasn't just trying to make sure that murderers and whatnot, you know, had were treated better in prison. Um, you're dealing with a period of time where you might be accused of a petty infraction, um, but laws were such that you could be held in a dungeon until you paid to get out. Um, so there were aspects even of just how people were, how and why people were incarcerated in the first place. And then for quarantine, you know, what was funny is that um, that was he was less successful in getting the Brits in particular to to change things based on his recommendations. Um, in fact, interestingly, the Brits did decide that they might look into building a national lazaretto and not just rely on Malta. Um, and in fact, they even requisitioned an island in the Thames estuary where the river hits the hits the uh, the sea. Um, and this is another thing you can see on Google Street View uh, or Google Satellite View, excuse me. Um, are the ruins of uh, the foundation that they started to build and then just abandoned on this island in the marshes. And, um, you know, there have been some archaeologists who've gone out there to look at it. But so John Howard almost succeeded, um, you know, but then the Brits just kind of lost their, I guess you could say, their their interest in, in taking on quarantine. And they just went back to relying on Malta. What is the disinfected male study circle and how did they enlighten you on quarantines? Yeah, the disinfected male study circle uh, are a group of, I would say, um, interesting or potentially eccentric uh, 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 stamp collectors and mail collectors. Uh, they're based in North London, but they have members all over the world. Um, in fact, Nikki and I actually joined the society many, many years ago uh, just as a way to sort of keep track of what they what they do. Um, but what their goal is, is not just to collect rare stamps, you know, the kinds of things that you sometimes hear about or read about in the Smithsonian Magazine, you know, you know, the inverted Jenny, which is that upside down airplane that's now worth millions of dollars. Um, instead, they collect mail that was sent to and from places of quarantine or places of, of outbreaks and pandemics in the past. Um, the reason why they know this is because the mail was disinfected. And so you can see the marks on the envelopes and even sometimes uh, stamps, uh, you know, like cancellation marks on the actual stamps um, that show what health authorities at that particular time were using to make sure that you didn't get smallpox in the mail or, um, you know, for that matter, the, the, the Black Death, um, you know, arriving in a parcel or in a letter from a loved one. 
And so you get things like um, uh, uh, actual punctures of the envelope um, in, some, in some countries and some places. Um, you get sl envelopes that have been sliced open so that you can get fumigants inside the envelope to supposedly kill anything there. And um, to make a long story short, what was interesting and how they enlightened us was that they are so good at what they do, these collectors and historians now, that they're able to actually identify uh, suspected outbreaks that sometimes have been forgotten by medical historians. Um, they can actually show that there was an outbreak of a particular disease in a port city in Europe, um, or they can show that there used to be quarantine stations run by a certain government in part of their country where maybe that that historical, that, that the, the history of the Brits in that region or the Germans in that region hasn't really been written. And so it was, it was really interesting that by looking at something so strange and seemingly so uninteresting, you know, which is disinfected mail, um, they were actually able to reveal all these things about national history, about the placement of borders and all kinds of stuff. Jeff, which is more impressive to you, the fact that a quarantine could have been totally forgotten about in the history book so that somebody could examine some disinfected mail to bring that history back? I mean, I guess I'd say the latter is the one that's more impressive. I think the funny thing with quarantine and one of the reasons why it's it's so easy to forget uh, is that, first of all, a lot of quarantine facilities uh, are were just torn down. Um, you know, one of the things about trying to make an itinerary around Europe if following in the footsteps of John Howard is that there's just simply not a lot of places to visit anymore. Um, you know, once a disease is over or the pandemic is gone, people want to forget. Uh, they get rid of the quarantine station, they tear it down, uh, or sometimes it was temporary in the first place. You know, it was a little wooden hut that the authorities would build outside the city and they'd put people in it. And then they'd set fire to the hut when it was over and the quarantine is forgotten. And in fact, I think that's one of the things that we'll probably see with COVID-19, which is that, you know, that once it feels like the pandemic is over and there's no risk anymore, this is the last thing you want to think about. You know, people move on, they 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 just bury that in the memory hole. And 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 one of the things we say in this book is how that's exactly what we should not do now. You know, we have a great opportunity here to think through quarantine. Um, we just saw all the problems with it. Um, many of us experienced it in ways that were much worse than others because of they, you know, we didn't didn't have access to income or lived in a house with multiple generations of family members. Um, but now is the time to to think about that stuff. So that's a long answer, but I would say that uh, it doesn't surprise me that quarantines were forgotten in history, and it does impress me very much that uh, someone can look at an envelope and tell you that there was an outbreak of something in Marseille, France, 300 years ago. Very well put. One of my favorite sentences in this book was, mail often holds up a mirror to the epidemic of fear. Like how? Well, you see a lot of things. You know, uh, you... The, Male, like all objects and even people during outbreaks, are treated with suspicion and are feared as vectors. And so we develop protocols for dealing with that. And we siphon off mail from one region and we stick it in one bin and we let the other other stuff through. I mean, you still see it today, even after 9-11, when there was the anthrax scare. And you had uh, and still have actually packages going to certain zip codes in Washington, D.C. are still irradiated. Um, the fear being that they might be containing anthrax or some other kind of living spore that might be a biological attack on our politicians. And so, you know, you still see this kind of, um, we treat objects because we're afraid of them and how we treat them shows what we're afraid of. And so even during COVID-19, you know, the Chinese government quarantined its cash supply. Uh, there was quarantining of mail coming here from China, even if it wasn't from part of China that was necessarily affected by COVID-19. Um, and so you just see this kind of thing where um, quarantine and our reaction to uh, the goods that we trade 
and whether or not we want to hold them separately from other goods uh, is, a, is an interesting indicator of what we're afraid of. Considering that you already told me that quarantines throughout history have been politicized, it should not be any surprise to people that governments have also exploited quarantines to their advantage. How did the U.S. use quarantines to help advance colonialism back in the 1800s? Well, yeah, that's interesting, too. So what we found through the experts who we tracked down who have been writing about this in their own work very extensively um, was that as colonial powers move into, including the United States, um, move into many of the landscapes and regions of the world that were colonized, which are tend to be tropical, uh, tend to be quite remote without infrastructure, uh, and tend to have uh, endemic disease, like things like malaria, uh, even cholera in the case of the Brits in India, um, that quarantine becomes a way to implement uh, American style or European style health codes, uh, which requires American style or European style uh, enforcement and um, administration. And then health practices becomes one way to control the local population. Um, so, you know, you really see that in not only just U.S. colonial activities abroad, but you also see that in, uh, you know, Egypt and Sudan, where the Brits uh, would control local populations by putting them into different camps. Uh, and effectively uh, uh, studying everything they did, uh, controlling how much food they ate, even where they went to the bathroom, um, you know, things that would be seen as, uh, you know, Orwellian or totalitarian, but it was done in the name of disease control. And so, yeah, you see that in, in, in U.S. colonial practices, but really uh, in colonial practices throughout European history. Were there any glaring examples of quarantine failure back in the 1800s or heck, even the 1900s for that matter? Well, that's the funny thing with quarantine is that it fails quite often. So, and yet it still remains effective. So the idea is not a total quarantine that, you know, you have to maintain, you know, a, a impermeable separation between one thing and the other. It simply means that you're separating things to buy time to figure out what's happening between them. What is this contamination or this infection process? Um, what is the virus? How do we deal with that virus? Do we have more time to develop a vaccine? Uh, or, or some other kind of medical treatment. Um, and so quarantine can fail and it, and it can be leaky, but it can still be effective. And so, yeah, there were many examples, um, you know, the, some of them, you know, just, uh, you know, one that I, that I love uh, that because it sounds like the opening scene of a horror movie uh, and luckily nothing happened from this, um, but was actually a boat was uh, anchored in quarantine off the coast of Boston and uh, was being held there. But then the ship's pilot, we got bored one night and the water in the bay froze and so he just crawled off the boat, dropped down onto the ice and just walked into town, um, you know, which uh, luckily he was not bearing, um, you know, yellow fever or you know, had cholera or any of the diseases they might have been worried about. Um, one really tragic example um, was that there was a, uh, a quarantine facility that, as I was describing earlier, it doesn't exist anymore, um, although it was spectacular when it, when, it, when it existed. This is in the city of Split, which is also in the country of Croatia. And uh, one of the guards at this lazaretto uh, saw a really nice scarf that had been taken in from, I want to say it was merchants from Turkey. And, um, you know, not knowing how the Black Death was transmitted, um, just thought, this is beautiful and I want to give it to my wife. And so he slipped in, he, sco he stole this beautiful scarf, he went home, he gave it to his wife. Um, but the fleas that carry the, 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 the uh, microbe that, that causes the Black Death were living in the, the threads of the, of the scarf. He gave it to his wife. She died of the bubonic plague. And in fact, actually, it swept through the city uh, and caused, you know, just tens of thousands of deaths. 
And so those kinds of stories are actually surprisingly common, uh, you know, because people don't really know even what they're guarding against. And also quarantine, as I think we've seen with COVID-19, always feels too cautious. You know, what do you mean I can't go outside into the park? Or what do you mean I'm not meant to interact with someone in my own family? And even though we live in the same house, um, it can seem very restrictive and slightly puzzling. And so people are constantly throughout history doing things to, to, to undercut it or to resist it. Speaking of horror stories, Jeff, how have pandemics helped to fuel vampire culture? Hmm. Uh, they, they've done that in a, in a couple ways. Um, you know, we were talking a little bit about the disinfected mail study circle. And one of the things that you can see through studying quarantine and history uh, is, is, is where quarantine happened and, and, and what were the political stakes behind that. And so there was an entire region of southeastern Europe uh, that was the became known as a cordon sanitaire, a sanitary uh, cordon, uh, basically between Western Christian Europe and uh, the, the the Ottoman Empire, or the or the Muslim Middle East. Um, this this stretches from say Bosnia through Serbia uh, and was the edge of the Austro-Hungarian Empire and where where it hit the Ottoman uh, Empire. And so along that cordon sanitaire, people, it was a heavily militarized. Um, it was a very uh, suspicious, suspicion laden place. Um, if you lived there, you were required like a military draft uh, to take up an arm and actually be in one of these towers. Uh, so towers were built um, within a rifle shot of each other. Um, and you were meant to effectively be suspicious about everyone that came through. Um, but part of that region then is also what we now call Transylvania. Uh, it's also, uh, you know, some of the sightings of, of allegedly sick people coming in, you know, trying to sneak through at night. Um, and then even just that whole kind of liminal kind of neither here nor there status of the vampire um, is also something that comes out of the status of the quarantined person. You know, you might be carrying a disease or you might not be. Um, you're trying to slip through and you might be spreading this thing that people don't know what it is, but you maybe you aren't. Um, and so the kinds of suspicions and even just that general region um, helps lay this, the, the groundwork for European vampire sightings, which then became part of the local folklore. Um, they got into folk tales, et cetera. And then, you know, a, a little bit later, a British writer showed up and, and wrote Dracula, you know, firmly pinning vampire myths in, in that part of uh, Southeastern Europe. I love that story in this book. A little bit more serious now. What is the English preventative system and just how important was it for not just the evolution of quarantines, but also our evolution in understanding how to defend against disease? Um, yeah, that's a that's a great question as well. So, in effect, that was a way for the Brits to implement uh, health controls without having to rely on uh, one a national lazaretto, but two quarantine really at all. Uh, and it was the idea of uh, allowing people in, even into the country, even if they might be bearing a disease, um, but then implementing early versions of tracking and trace, uh, what we now call tracking and tracing. Uh, so figuring out who they are, uh, where they're going and who they're interacting with. So if there is an outbreak, you can track down the people that they met. Um, you can maybe, uh, you know, which would mean that you can track down who might have this disease and where it might be going next. Um, but then part of that too, triggers then uh, a whole different system of bureaucracies. And so you're now having to identify people. Um, they need to be able to uh, say who they are and have proof of that. Um, you need to have people that are actually out there tracking individual people in the, in the populace, not just generally controlling people in a lazaretto. And so what we talk about in the book is how many of the things that are implemented during quarantine, or at the, or at the least in this case, disease control, things that are implemented in the name of public health um, often become permanent 
uh, and they shape what's to come later. And so you see the rise of a kind, kind of like this modern sense of identity in the modern, uh, in the in the actual political sense, and um, the modern use of uh, uh, tracking, training, ID, all these things coming out of uh, health programs. And so what's also interesting, even with the COVID-19 response, is that you see, um, you know, the Brits were slow to implement some of the quarantine measures. Uh, you know, there's still, I think, a, a, a resistance to that in the British political psyche that um, is a little bit opposed to putting limits on things. You know, it's a very mercantilist uh, state even today. Um, it's very economically driven. And I think what people have been trying to do throughout history is find a way to resist disease, but without turning off the economy. And the English preventative system was was effectively one way of looking at how you would be able to do that. And actually, just to be honest, it worked. Uh, you know, after that point, there were no more cholera outbreaks in England. And um, it set it was a it was a interesting example for medical historians in terms of how you might be able to control disease without mass quarantine. Why does Martin Cetron, who is the CDC's director of the Division of Global Migration and Quarantine, want to find a different name for quarantines? Mm-hmm. Well, that's funny because uh, he was and is, you know, one of the preeminent sort of spokespeople for quarantine. Um, you know, he has taken it on himself to help redefine the legal rights of the quarantine um, to give people a, 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 a helping hand uh, so that when if the state, if the government, if the if, uh, you know, politicians are going to ask you to stay at home or to stay in this hotel, um, they should also take more steps in your direction and make sure that. Uh, there's justifiable reason for them to say this, uh, and also that they can even you know work with wage replacement or other ways to make it easier for you. So it isn't just a sacrifice borne by the individual. But the reason why I say all that is because um, for someone who has turned out to be a very, I'm not going to say he's pro quarantine, but I am going to say that he is firmly in the camp of trying to make quarantine better for individuals and making sure it's better for the state. When he first showed up at the job. Um, you know, he wanted to, as you mentioned, eliminate the word quarantine altogether. He just thought it was scary. He thought it was this thing that's just going to turn people off. Um, and at the, his initial uh, time at the CDC, just didn't see the importance of it. Um, I will just say briefly that that attitude um, was seen, we saw that pretty consistently across other public health uh, professionals. Um, we actually went all the way to Geneva, Switzerland, to go to the World Health Organization and um, we met with their head of uh, infectious disease programs. And actually she was, and this is only in 2000, I think this was at the end of 2016, um, but she was taken aback that we were writing a non-historical book about quarantine. Um, you know, she, she was like, this is not something we actually recommend. It's not a, it's not a technique that, you know, is at front of mind for us. And, uh, you know, was, was, couldn't really believe that we would think quarantine had a future. Um, so that was just a very interesting thing to encounter amongst public health professionals who seemed even like the general public to think that this was something we had left in the past. Um, and of course, you know, I think COVID-19 has changed everyone's opinions now. Well, if anybody's wondering how le- legit Cetron is, he's actually credited with coining the phrase flattening the curve, which he did so about 15 years ago. What did he and a colleague learn about how quarantining helped flatten the 1918 Spanish flu curve? He learned a lot of really nice lessons from studying that. Um, one very basic thing that will sound almost uh, trivial, but was that uh, there weren't a lot of data sources for that particular outbreak or, and where it got or for that particular pandemic and how it went from city to city and how people responded to it, um, except for in the period newspapers of the time. 
And so he was actually able to spend massive amounts of time going through old microfiche and scanned newspapers and even old physical copies of newspapers and piecing together a kind of outbreak narrative to understand what happened back there. Um, and the reason why I mentioned that is because he was very adamant about how important it is to keep data, uh, you know, to hold on to information, to not let this stuff get memory hold or to, you know, to, to disappear into history. Um, but there were other things that they looked at, you know, things were like, um, you know, a famous example is the, the Philadelphia parade that was a, a major uh, 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 super spreading event um, and how there was political resistance to shutting down um, public displays that are considered, you know, part of a community's backbone. It's, it's, it's what we do. It's our identity. We have to do this. You know, we can't, we can't have a year without Christmas or a year without parades or whatever it might be. Um, and yet, if you want to stop a disease from spreading, sometimes you do have to make those sacrifices. Um, but I'd say that that's probably the major thing he took away from studying that, which, which was simply that um, politics will get in the way. Um, and not just politics in the politician sense, but the politics of how, you know, we think we're meant to engage with one another, the cultural expectations we have of our, of our towns, of our, of our cities. And sometimes that stuff can get in the way of controlling a disease because maybe we're not willing to stop shaking hands or we're not willing to get our family together for Thanksgiving or the 4th of July. Um, and then that's exactly how those kinds of ways of resisting um, public health advice uh, can help help a disease get much worse and endanger the very people who think they're, you know, maybe, maybe not going to be affected by it. On the subject of controlling disease in the early 1900s, most everybody at this point has heard of the Spanish flu, mm -hmm. but... I'm in that category of people who had no idea what the American plan was before reading about it in this book. So what exactly was the American plan? Yeah, the American plan is another one that really kind of stunned us and uh, was something that, uh, like, as you mentioned, we are, ourselves had never heard of. Um, it's one of these things that um, I don't think has really gotten its kind of historical due. Um, there's really only one major book written about it by a gentleman named Scott Stern. Um, you know, who, 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 who dug up a lot of the material that we relied upon for, for our own encapsulation of the, of the American plan in our book. Um, but to, to make a long story short, the American plan was effectively a way of quarantining women who were seen as, a, as, as potentially spreading venereal disease around society. Um, and so these weren't women who necessarily had venereal disease or who were even necessarily promiscuous. Um, it, was, it became politicized immediately. So suddenly now you have this public health power. Um, you know, here is a woman who is, uh, you know, maybe uh, she, maybe she even lost her loved one in World War One, um, and is now living alone. She's living in a society where women are getting the right to vote, where women are becoming more. Um, they're they're you can find them in the workplace, and they're now being suspected of these things, and 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 uh, society is is rebelling against them, and 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 deciding that they they might be a threat. And so the idea was that, you know. Um, a woman dining alone in a restaurant uh, might be a, a, a moral risk to the men around her and so could be actually put into quarantine and held in a correctional facility. Um, uh, if a man uh, got in an argument with his wife, uh, you know, it, it might be uh, grounds for her to be quarantined. You know, he could just say, you know, she's she's being uppity or, you know, whatever it might be. She's a threat to the, the, the structure of our family. Um, in several cases, women who were actually prescribed whiskey, which at the time was believed to sort of help with certain ailments, um, would be found with alcohol and then would be quarantined because they were seen as being women of loose morals. Um, but then, as, a, as is the case with many 20th century medical horror stories in the United States, um, it was also very in, unequally applied to women of color. 
And so even in states in the US where women of color made up a small percentage of the overall population, they made up a huge percentage of the women who were uh, uh, subject to the American plan. Um, so incredibly, this thing lasted actually, it was some of the laws uh, were on the books until the 1970s. Um, and so, you know, this is a, a, a pretty stunning example of how quarantine can be used for pretty much anything but medical control. And also, you know, as my wife, uh, you know, has pointed out, she, uh, Nikki, my co-author, uh, you know, men can also spread venereal disease, but there was never, there was never a talk of putting men in quarantine. Um, and that was justified economically saying that, you know, well, the men are the breadwinners, um, you know, so why, why should we take them away from their families? We need to get these loose women off the streets. So yes, it was an absolutely fascinating, but very dark time um, in, in American history and, and, a, and a story that it was, uh, I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad we were able to include in the book to help to help expose it. Yeah, no doubt about that. Now, one of the first quarantine structures in the U.S. was in Fort Detrick, Maryland, where a lot of messed up things have happened over time. This quarantine structure was nicknamed the Slammer. What sort of dark things were popping up in this dour, da- dour sounding building known as the Slammer? Well, so the slammer, and, and it, it got that nickname because of the, the the slam that the door would make when you when you closed it. Um, you know, it was a place that almost sounds like something out of uh, urban legends or, or folklore. You know, it was this terrifying room that nobody wanted to go into. When they were, they often broke down. Uh, you know, they'd be isolated or quarantined there. Um, and I'm talking about um, high-level disease researchers, uh, generally connected to the U.S. military or to other, uh, you know, uh, uh, federal health institutes that might be researching a certain disease like say Ebola or anthrax. And um, the slammer was where they would go if they had been exposed to one of these things. Um, maybe they were working with Ebola and they accidentally scratched themselves with a, with a, with a needle. Um, maybe it was anthrax and there was another kind of lab accident. Um, and so the slammer was the place where they would be sent to. Um, but that was just kind of one, the sort of the tip of the iceberg for federal disease research of that, of that nature. And Fort Detrick is only one place. Um, you know, the the lack of other high level quarantine facilities, you know, a place like the Slammer, if the Slammer ever was out of out of incapacitated, um, is one of the things that led to some current projects that are being uh, under construction or, or just have opened or will open soon um, so that the federal government is not dependent on just this one legendary room, the Slammer. Well, it makes sense that something like that would be in Fort Detrick, Maryland. Nicholson Baker wrote a great book about a year ago called Baseless. The paperback just came out. And there was bioweapons research going on there, too. And they were fairly open with it in the media in terms of some of the stuff that they were working on. There was a scientist there who on more than one occasion accidentally let Q fever get released from the lab. I know we're talking a lot about lab leaks in 2021, but he was literally quoted in the paper saying, we were working with Q fever and it got away from us again. So I guess it makes sense that the uh, the most hardened quarantine structure in the U.S. existed right there at Fort Detrick, Maryland. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned that too. Um, you know, Plum Island is another place that we look at in the book, um, Plum Island, very, very briefly in the book. Um, but Plum Island was a research facility at the off the coast of Long Island, um, just across the 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 water from Con- the shore of Connecticut. And um, there too, they would they were researching very very dangerous, very very easily spread or easily transmitted animal diseases. Um, foot and mouth disease is one of them. Um, and a detail that we actually don't include in the book, but I'll just mention because it's 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 pretty stunning. Um, when the government did, they ran some simulations about what would happen if foot and mouth disease escaped from a lab, whether it's Plum Island or another federal facility. 
Um, but in the in one of the simulations, I think this was in 2002, uh, it was run as a as a response to the 9/11 attacks. Um, they actually found that so many animals would get foot and mouth disease that when the National Guard was mobilized to help put down these these infected herds, um, that they ran out of bullets. That's how many dead animals there, or how many animals would need to be put down. And so, you know, you're talking about very serious diseases and very very serious consequences for when these things are leaked or or otherwise get out of out of a facility which makes it all the stranger in fact actually that um and we go here in the book that plum island is now being decommissioned and shut down and it's being replaced by uh, a new facility in the very heart of kansas Man uh, manhattan kansas which is the heart of the american cattle country and uh, or, or agriculture in general really um, but you're dealing with the, you know diseases like foot and mouth disease in in a part of the country where surely you know a, a lab leak would be the this would be the worst place for a lab leak to possibly happen. Um, but so talking to the engineers and the architects and so on about how they're managing that risk uh, was also just another completely fascinating aspect of this. And in fact, one of the people who works out there um, you, at that university, Kansas State University, um, was, uh, connected to the, the slammer that you mentioned earlier. So it's, you know, it's a, it's a tight knit group of people. On the, uh, the Manhattan, Kansas structure, you and Nikki did a good job of pointing out just how fragile the American agriculture supply is to some sort of biological attack. Is there a version of quarantining for food? Um, there is actually, yeah, there, um, it, it really depends on how valuable the commodity is and whether or not it's a quarantinable disease. You know, so some diseases you just can't quarantine for because they don't they spread either, you know, through spores in the atmosphere or, or other ways that quarantine itself won't work. Um, but, yeah, there is there's animal quarantine. Um, you know, if uh, generally speaking, if an animal gets a disease, that particular animal is not valuable enough to to put into quarantine. So it'll be put down. Um, but nevertheless, there are animal quarantine facilities. Um, there's actually one at JFK Airport. Um, you know, we, we look at other other examples of animal quarantine, um, but it's plant quarantine um, that you see a lot of these sorts of controls. Um, on one level, you know, we live in California and um, the border of California is ringed with these little agricultural inspection stations. You know, if you don't know what they are, they just seem really inconvenient and kind of annoying. Um, you know, you're driving into California from Arizona, from Nevada, from Oregon. Um, and then you have to stop, you go through a little gated structure and some, someone's going to ask you if you have any fruit or vegetables in the car. Um, you know, there's not any real explanation of why you're, they're asking you this question. And um, I think many people just take it as an annoyance. They just say, no, there's nothing in the car and they drive through. Um, but it turns out because we spent a day with these inspectors, um, you know, they're protecting a multi, multi-billion dollar agricultural industry from pests that are already established elsewhere in the country. And they're trying to keep it out of our um, you know, the fruit and vegetable, uh, the farmlands of, of Central California. Um, chocolate is another one. Um, we went to the actual, the chocolate quarantine facility. It's a, a cocoa quarantine, um, which is outside London, England, of all places. Um, but, you know, you've got major chocolate growing regions in the world, or rather cocoa growing regions in the world, cacao. And those plants, in order to, to move around the world, if, if, some, if an agronomist or a, a farmer wants to experiment with a new, new type of, of cacao plant, um, those plants are very subject to infection and they can spread disease and they could wipe out chocolate. Um, and so they're sent in fact to London first where they go to this little town or a city called Reading uh, and they're put into quarantine for up to three years. Um, and so they're watched to see if they, if they uh, exhibit signs of any number of diseases. And there's like a, at least a baker's dozen of different um, pathogens that can affect chocolate plants. And so the fear, and it's a realistic fear, is that some plant disease is going to strike cacao plants 
and uh, be basically wipe out chocolate in the world. Um, there's actually a word for it. It's called the chocpocalypse. And um, <laughs> there's, there's a fear actually that, you know, chocolate will someday be as rare and as, as expensive as caviar. Um, and so, you know, that's one thing to, to worry about if you're, if you're a chocoholic, uh, that you, you, these may be, uh, your days may be numbered. I would hate to see what happened to this world if we ran out of chocolate, Jeff. Me too. Yeah, that's not, a, <laughs> not, not something I would, I would look forward to. On the animal side of things, how do colony insects, animals like bees, ants, termites, and spiders, how can these colony insects, uh, the way that they mitigate the risk of disease within that hive, help humans out, help humans to take a cue in how to avoid disease within our respective hives? Um, yeah, that's that's you're you're asking about really fascinating research um, that is relatively new, and also one of the things that benefits in a strange way from you know what's happening with COVID. It seems like very well timed animal behavior research, um, but it's been found actually that health behaviors that resemble quarantine and isolation can be found in other species. Um, so you know termites might build a nest differently uh, depending on whether or not they suspect that that parts of the the colony are dying. So they'll have less interconnection between the chambers. And so that means that diseases will spread slower, if at all. Um, you know, other, other uh, uh, species will actually isolate themselves if they know that they're sick uh, so that they don't bring it back to the hive or, or spread it amongst the other people and waiting until they, 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 they not people, but uh, uh, individuals um, and wait until they're healthy to, to return. And so there are quarantine-like behaviors that exist in other species. And by studying how they act, uh, we can learn things from them as humans. Um, a great example um, it was uh, in studying how, um, I believe it was ants, but how they, how they uh, or it could have been termites actually, but how they get out of a nest. Um, it was found that they, they, will, they can evacuate the nest basically faster if there's an obstacle in the way. Um, and that research was applied in uh, architecture for human beings by, if you put a pole um, or a divider uh, on an exit door so that it isn't just a wide open mouth and people and hundreds of people have to go through, but they have to go to the right or to the left. Counterintuitively, that speeds up the evacuation process. It helps people organize and, 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 and more efficiently go to the right or to the left and actually leave the building hmm. as opposed to somebody on this side trying to go to that side and people just bumping into each other. And so it's studies like that that are first of all ongoing and 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 relatively recent or or or, or new to for researchers um, but are showing ways that we might be able to redesign our architecture for things like emergency uh, escapes um, but potentially even for quarantine and isolation behavior does the corn does the current quarantine infrastructure that's in place defend against quarantine's worst enemy and that would be human error well uh, that's the that's the part of the battle, you know, is really making sure that if humans make a mistake, the whole thing doesn't fall apart. And so you need redundancies, um, you need funding, uh, but you just need better designed facilities. And so I think part of that too, is making sure that quarantine has a place to happen. Um, you know, one of the things that was uh, made instantly clear with COVID-19 was that we ask people to quarantine, but they don't have anywhere to go. Um, you know, some people, maybe uh, they have to check into a very, very expensive hotel because they've just landed in the city where they don't live. Um, you know, or they live in a, a house, as I mentioned earlier, with multi multiple generations of the same family, um, some of whom might be uh, immunocompromised, uh, maybe even share a bedroom with someone. And maybe that person is, uh, you know, a, a frontline responder or works in a hospital. And so you, you, you can't sleep in the same room anymore because there's a risk of, of transmission. Um, and so if we build the facilities for quarantine, we can help reduce the 
consequences of human error. Um, maybe I'm just a pessimist, but I feel like we're not going to eliminate human error. Um, that's going to happen forever. You know, we're always making mistakes. We're doing stupid stuff. We get distracted. Um, but if we can mitigate the what will happen if there is such a thing, um, then I think that's that that would also yeah that would help to make quarantine. Um, indeed, all emergency infrastructure uh, safer and, and better for us all. You may call yourself a pessimist on human error. I would call you a realist, Jeff. Uh, <laughs> what is the waste isolation pilot plant? And was it as terrifying to go down into as uh, the description that you provided in the book? Because that sounded like an awful place to go to. Uh, yeah, the waste isolation pilot plant is, uh, is, a, is an incredible place. Uh, it is a underground salt mine in southeastern New Mexico, nearly on the border with Texas, um, where the salt is being mined out for only one reason, and that is to bury nuclear waste. And so one key thing that makes it less scary than it sounds is that you're not talking about, you know, the cores of, 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 of reactors that have been shipped across the country um, or former nuclear warheads or, or, or just glowing green liquid, you know, being pumped into a salt mine. Um, it's actually low-level exposed goods and, and whatnot. So it's the gloves somebody wore when they were working with plutonium at the Hanford site, um, or it's actually the desk, you know, the actual furniture that was in a room where maybe they were working with radioactive material. And so it is radioactive, and it has been exposed to radioactivity, and it's emitting radioactivity, um, but it's not quite as terrifying as it sounds. Um, what was very interesting about this and why we went to it for the book was to understand how isolation, because it's not a quarantine facility, it's an isolation facility, but how the technology of isolation for an extreme challenge um, might teach us some lessons about uh, about quarantine or, or medical isolation. And so, you know, they're tasked with an incredible thing here, which is that they have to keep nuclear waste separate from the entire Earth's biosphere uh, and, and for a federally mandated time period, at first it was 10,000 years, then it was 100,000 years, and in a couple of cases, it's 1 million years. And so, you know, I, again, going back to pessimism or realism, I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say there's not going to be a U.S. government 1 million years from now. So it'll be very interesting to see who, uh, you know, is enforcing these, these, these federal mandates. Um, but yeah, so to make a long story short, you know, we, we went down, it's an elevator that drops 2,150 feet uh, down into the ground. Uh, roughly, that's 215 floors, 220 floors. Um, you get off the elevator, everything smells of diesel. Uh, there's the, the the salt itself, like gets on your lips, like it's instantly it kind of feels like you're at the seashore. Um, the sound that your feet make as you walk on the on the on the floor is, almost sounds like fresh fallen snow. And this place is huge. Uh, I think the calculation that we came up with was that it's the size of about a hundred a hundred basketball courts, but they're all spread out through this huge labyrinth of, of, of corridors. So we hopped in an electric golf cart and we drove for just what felt like a half an hour. Hmm. Um, and so finally we came face to face with nuclear waste. And, um, you know, again, it was ominous, but they give you a dosimeter. Um, and I should say this place is not open for a public tour. So, you know, we were on a private, a private tour with the Department of Energy. Um, but you, they give you a dosimeter to see if you're uh, affected by radioactivity. Um, and then the waste itself, though, uh, you know, honestly, if you've ever boarded an airplane and looked out the window when they're putting suitcases and stuff into the into the cargo hold, it just kind of looked like that. Mm. Um, there's just canisters, uh, there's barrels, there's things wrapped in cellophane. And then somewhere inside that, you know, are, are these nuclear materials or nuclear contaminated materials. And um, and then that's WIP. Uh, they're going to fill it up, I think, by 2030, 2032. 
And, um, and then at some point they're gonna have to build another facility like that because this, like I say, this is only low level nuclear waste. Um, and, and we're still looking for a way to, to get rid of our high level nuclear waste. The future of quarantines may be interplanetary. What does the quarantine process look like for say Mars and why would this be so important to take part in? Um, yeah, that's that's a one of our chapters looks at exactly that question, and it's an existential question. The fear is that if there's life on Mars and we want to study it, uh, how ironic and tragic would it be for us to bring something with us and just wipe out all of that life? Um, you know, one of the things that inspired what's called planetary protection um, or you know interplanetary quarantine measures. Um, was actually the, the the what's called the Columbian Exchange. Um, you know, when European colonists or explorers came to the Amer- the Americas, and their own diseases uh, all but wiped out the the native population. Um, you know, we don't want to do that on an interplanetary level. Um, but the the fear in the other direction is just as real, which is that there may be life out there, and if we bring it back to Earth in the in the form of sample return. Um, you know, or an astronaut coming back from the moon or from Mars, and it's a disease we don't know what it is and have no cure for and and can just run rampant on the earth. Um, We also need to protect ourselves from that. And so, you know, I mentioned it's called planetary protection. Um, There's actually a a single person in in Washington, D.C. It's it's been two women in a row now. Um, We got to meet both of them. And um, the job title is planetary protection officer. And so they come up with the policies for how to make sure we can explore other planets without wiping out all the life there or wiping ourselves out if these things return. Um, there's a couple of reason, things about that that were pretty fascinating. One is just the extreme irony that we have come up because of this um, with unbelievably rigorous sterilization protocols for spacecraft. So when we send a, a rover to Mars, like Perseverance, which we got to see here in Pasadena uh, outside Los Angeles before it went to Mars, um, you know, they, they try to sterilize it to the to as, 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 as clean as humanly possible without damaging the instruments. And so there's this limit after which they simply can't go because they'll affect the, the electronics of the, of, the, of, the, of the thing itself. And so there's an acceptable risk. But in the process, Ironically, they've created things that are called spacecraft affiliated. Um, I'm, I'm blanking now on the acronym, but it's a it's a it's forms of life that exist now in spacecraft assembly rooms, because we've killed everything else except for the absolute hardiest organisms that can survive high temperature, um, that can survive uh, you know exposure to bleaches and all kinds of different uh, uh, tools. And so the irony is that we've created kind of super microbes and that those are the things that are left on our spacecraft so that when we send it to Mars, the one thing that can survive these crazy extremes um, is the only thing living on that uh, on that craft. And so anyway, that's just one of the many ironies and, and interesting aspects of planetary protection. No doubt about that. I wanted to end today's conversation by talking a little bit about COVID-19. Y'all started this project several years before COVID. I feel like you could have released the book last year without a pandemic getting into the way. Now, it certainly works out well for you that, uh, and look, I'm not saying that you are rooting for a pandemic, but it works out well that more people are going to be interested in this subject now because of what we've all gone through. My question for you is, how much extra work did y'all have to put into this book to make sure that it fit with the current times? Yeah, that's a great question, and um, you know, something that our, our editor was asking too, as as COVID nineteen kind of uh, you know emerged and 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 was striking countries around the world. Um, you know, one thing we like to point out uh, is that actually when we sold this book, the the our our contract with our publisher, 
uh, it was under, it was called the coming quarantine. Um, because our our hypothesis was that quarantine is going to become much more necessary in the future uh, and much less obsolete, precisely because we're being exposed to new diseases, new coronaviruses, you know, new uh, hemorrhagic fevers that are coming out of caves or rainforests that are being cleared for industry. And so quarantine will be the only response we have um, until until we develop a vaccine or a cure. Um, but yeah, COVID definitely, I mean, it didn't completely rewrite the book, but it definitely made it uh, at least a couple things. One was that we changed the opening of the book so that to address COVID-19 and the fact that at one point while we were finishing the manuscript, more than half of the entire Earth's human population was in some state of quarantine or lockdown. Mm. So we went from something that, you know, happened to a few people here and there, maybe it happened to a, a nurse or a doctor because of Ebola exposure, but it went from, you know, the, a couple handfuls of people to suddenly billions of, of humans, you know, we're experiencing lockdown, which is obviously going to change the stakes of the book that we were writing. Um, but I think it also uh, gave us a, I think urgency might not be the right word, but a, a sense that we were seeing the same mistakes happening, uh, you know, in Europe and China and the United States that you see throughout the history of quarantine, um, miscommunication, a, a lack of trust between people and, and governments, uh, inadequate institutions or facilities to to quarantine people to keep people uh, separate from one another um, and we just caught, saw the same mistakes over and over again and so i think it lent us a feeling that we really wanted to make this book the kind of book that you can read and read now and understand how to do quarantine better next time because there's going to be a next time um, whether it's you know covid 27 in the year 2027 or you know whatever this the, the next pandemic is um, we need to take this opportunity and this moment to understand what went wrong and, and how we can do it right the next time. And so I think that that was one of the effects COVID had on the book was just making it um, yeah, more, much more timely in a, in a, in a sense of, of trying to change things for the next. Well, it was interesting to see things play out over the country over the last year. You're in California. Y'all were about as strict as anybody in the country and across the country, Florida, America's most flaccid member was wide open last September too. So it seems like the answer may be somewhere in between. And on that note, what you were just talking about, Jeff, what should be done differently the next time? Because as you said, there will be a next time. So what should we do differently quarantine wise the next time? Uh, well, that's, that's a, that's a huge question. Um, but I think I would just say that some of the most important things that to do um, is to recognize that quarantine is an experience. It's something that people have to do and live through. Uh, I think way too often people just say, oh, you've been exposed to this thing. Okay, go quarantine. You know, just go to find an airport hotel or just go home. Um, but there has to be a recognition that actually you're asking people to go through an experience, that there's a process happening um, and to have things in place for that, uh, you know, a place for them to go, um, access to meals, access to wage replacement, um, a recognition that you're saying to someone, you have to put your entire life on hold. And it doesn't surprise us at all that people resisted that or were or were um, irritated by the the imposition of these limits on on their lives. And I think one way to get around that kind of irritation or resistance is to make sure that the the state or whether it's the actual state or the government and the federal government, um, it recognizes the sacrifice that it's asking people to do. And I think that you know there's any number of ways that that can happen, financial, cultural, um, but I think that that's a, a one key aspect of this is not just to pretend quarantine is easy or that it doesn't really take anything and that you can just tell people to do it. 
Jeff Mayno is a best-selling author, regular contributor for The New York Times Magazine, The Atlantic, The New Yorker, Wired, and more. And he's just co-authored an excellent new book called Until Proven Safe, The History and Future of Quarantine. You can get it now wherever books are sold. Jeff, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this important book. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. Join me next time when I speak with Greg Ruth and Ethan Hawke on their new graphic novel titled Meadowlark a coming-of-age crime story. Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. Thanks to you for hanging out. You can listen, learn, and follow for free at BooksOnPod.com. For Books on Pod, I'm Trey Elling. Good day.